Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Today we are joined by Arizona State University professor Dr. Brooks Simpson. Dr. Simpson got his undergraduate degree from the University of Virginia and his master's and doctorate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He has written several books, including Advice After Appomattox, Letters to Andrew Johnson, Let Us Have Peace, Ulysses S. Grant and the Politics of War and Reconstruction, The Political Education of Henry Adams, America's Civil War, Union and Emancipation, the list goes on and on. Dr. Simpson joins us today to talk about the summer of 1864. We will discuss Grant's Overland Campaign, the Battle of Atlanta, and the election of 1864. Without further ado, we will begin our discussion. Today we are joined by Dr. Simpson of Arizona State University. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Just fine. How are you? I'm very good. I appreciate your time. So today we're going to be talking about the summer of 1864. And for our listeners out there, this is a pivotal moment in the Civil War and in American history. A lot of major events we will discuss, the Overland Campaign as Grant heads east from the west, uh, as Sherman takes over command of the Western armies out there and captures Atlanta, and as Lincoln kind of sits on the edge of his seat to see if he's going to win re-election. A lot going on here. So the first thing I kind of want to ask you is, after 1863, Lee invades Gettysburg, uh, invades the North, we have the Battle of Gettysburg, and he retreats. Now, a lot of people like to simplify the Civil War and kind of say, this is the turning point. Um, You can even throw Vicksburg in there. Vicksburg falls at the same time. Um, But the Southern Army is not done yet. Um, So after Gettysburg, is the South still have a fighting chance? Do they still have a good chance of winning? Um, Or are they just kind of hanging on to a pipe dream at this point? I I think the Confederacy has uh, a very good chance of winning, actually, Uh, that... uh, uh, and uh, the Confederates thought they did, by and large. Uh, Robert E. Lee, in fact, looked forward to renewing offensive operations in 1864. And their target, Lee, uh, for all his uh, military skill, was not unaware of the political dimensions of uh, military operations. Uh, he knew that uh, Lincoln's uh, re-election uh, would be jeopardized if there were more Confederate successes that that Gettysburg was a setback, but that didn't mean that the game was up. So the Confederates come into 1864 thinking that finally they have a chance that they strike the right kind of blows and discourage uh, Northern voters uh, from reelecting Lincoln, uh, that they can uh, deal with a democratic administration uh, and treat for independence. So Lee's not looking here to outright beat Meade or Grant. He's looking to beat them in the polls. He's hoping to win that election. Military victories are only useful to Lee if they lead to something else. And and that's something that that Lee had understood by this time, that uh, he had won, for example, sensational military victories of Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, but that they really didn't have a lot of impact on the course of the war. Uh, they certainly did not brighten Confederate chances for the long term. Uh, and he understood that Gettysburg was a setback, but by no means did he think that uh, what had happened at Gettysburg was a turning point, uh, that it was a high watermark, that it was the beginning of the end. Uh, he was actually 
fairly optimistic as 1864 began. Yeah, and so another thing that happens as 1864 begins is this bright general from the West, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, he gets promoted three-star general first since George Washington. He takes command of the Army of the Potomac. Obviously, Meade is still in command, but it's not an independent command. So he's going to kind of turn the tables now and go into the South and invade the homeland. So as we set up this overland campaign in the summer of 1864, uh, what advantage do you think Lee has in terms of terrain? Um, he's on his home state as opposed to Gettysburg and the invasion of the North. Is this going to play in his favor? Well, remember, you know, the Confederate military operations are not just limited to Virginia and Robert E. Lee, although Lee does a he does appreciate that much of the public relations offensive tends to focus on Virginia. Uh, Lee's um, perspective is a really simple one, that he's undefeated uh, when he fights in Virginia, uh, and that uh, he believes he can once again check the United States advance into central Virginia, crossing the Rapidan and Rappahannock rivers, that uh, Armed Potomac had tried to do that twice and been driven back both times. So why not a third time? Uh, in, in the end of uh, uh, 1863 at Mine Run, George Meade had tried to launch his own offensive across those rivers um, and then had uh, stopped short of an outright assault uh, because of the strength of Lee's position. Uh, mm -hmm. So Lee, Lee be begins to believe that that Rappahannock Rapidan River Network is really a, a position of strength and that the Union forces may be able to cross that river, but they can't stay on the south bank of it. So Lee's successes here are almost going to become his downfall. Well, he certainly, you know, has reason for confidence at that time and he knows his command. Uh, he knows the abilities of his generals. Uh, Grant is coming to an army he has not commanded before with generals with strengths and weaknesses with which he's not familiar. Um, an army which has been haunted by um, uh, shortcomings in generalship and with an acute sense of having uh, people like Lincoln and Edwin Stanton and others looking over their shoulders every time they moved. So again, the, the pattern up to this point is that uh, both sides have been able to win on their home turf, so to speak. That the uh, you know, Potomac does triumph, uh, though not by much at Antietam, and it certainly drives the Confederates away at Gettysburg. So, therefore, you know, Lee has no reason to believe that his army will not defend Virginia as it has before. And you mentioned Grant. So, Grant's coming in and taking over a new army. Um, the Army of the Potomac has gone through a series of leaders, right? We have McClellan, Pope, Hooker, uh, the list goes on and on, Burnside. So do you think that come 1864, um, he's captured Vicksburg, Donaldson, Henry, um, he's won these battles. Is he the right man for the job? Uh, certainly Abraham Lincoln believes so, that uh, in terms of uh, United States military leadership, that uh, no one by the end of 1863 had compiled the uh, record of success that uh, Grant had in independent command. There were other capable uh, United States generals, to be sure, uh, but nobody had compiled 
uh, uh, Grant's record of uh, securing the surrender of two enemy armies and of opening uh, the gate to the Confederate heartland by uh, triumphing at uh, Chattanooga. So you, these are significant military victories. Uh, and Lincoln decides in 1864, uh, he's gonna go all in with Grant. And that's one reason Grant gets that third star. So everyone knows that he is in charge. And basically Lincoln's putting all his eggs in the Grant basket, so to speak, and, and trusts that he will come up with the kind of overall strategy, strategy, not just in Virginia, but across the Confederacy as a whole uh, to triumph. So before we get into the uh, Overland campaign here, um, so we got Lee, we got Grant, and this is that classic mashup, right? Uh, people love to debate this one, but how do you feel these generals stack up um, before we get into this campaign? What are their strengths, their weaknesses? Who do you think has the advantage? I mean, we know the outcome, but um, looking back on it from a historical perspective. Well, Lee is a fairly able battlefield commander, uh, especially in the defensive and launching counter punches, especially if he's in uh, Virginia. He's not quite as skilled as a tactician or a battlefield commander north of the Potomac. Uh, Gettysburg is not a particularly well-fought battle. Uh, Antietam, uh, he was lucky to get away with his army. A more aggressive opponent might have taken more advantage of the situation that presented itself uh, north of the uh, Potomac. Uh, so in the South, however, though, he in, in Confederate territory, he has been uh, magnificent. Uh, and he has truly, you know, come into his own in mid to late 1862 to the beginning of 1863. Where Lee falls short, though, is that he often finds that he cannot convert his battlefield successes into strategic advantages. Mm -hmm. the, the most that Lee's been able to do other than defend Richmond and, and throw a scare into the authorities in Washington every once in a while is sort of nullify uh, the impact of uh, U.S. victories elsewhere, like uh, Shiloh, Vicksburg, or uh, Chattanooga, uh, because there's so much attention being paid in the media of, of both sides and in Europe of what's going on in Virginia. People focus on that with the two national capitals 100 miles apart. That's where people's attention has been focused. And so... People like uh, Abraham Lincoln often complained, we're winning elsewhere, but no one seems to appreciate that because they focus so much on what's going on in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So putting Grant in command is one step, but bringing Grant east is the other step. And Grant was willing to come east under certain conditions um, and leave uh, command of his old military forces in the West under uh, William T. Sherman, whom he uh, uh, trusted uh, would carry out his part of the mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll get to Sherman uh, after the Overland campaign, and I want to dig into him with command out there. So Grant crosses in to Virginia, uh, and they're going to meet at the old Chancellorsville battlefield at the Battle of the Wilderness. Um, so on May 6th, during the second day of fighting, Winfield Scott Hancock's corps is going to smash into Lee, and his lines are nearly going to break. Um, so how close do you think the Union really was to victory? It seems like a common thread throughout the Civil War that the Union's just on the verge and then something happens and they lose. 
I in uh, Battle of the Wilderness, there are exchanges of blows on both sides. Both sides get the upper hand and then lose it, and the other side regains its balance. So it's a, a true slugfest. Uh, Hancock's assault um, uh, was stopped largely by the arrival of reinforcements under James Longstreet. Longstreet counterattacks in turn, drives Hancock back. And then he's checked while uh, Longstreet is wounded by friendly fire, which is never very friendly. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then the Confederates launch an evening attack against the Union right flank, uh, which achieves a little initial success, largely because it's dark, uh, but peters out. And so at the end of those two days of combat, both sides had chances. Um, uh, but the result is basically a, a tactical stalemate in terms of the battle itself. Yeah, and then you mentioned Longstreet gets hurt. Uh, so what kind of impact is Longstreet's injury going to have? I mean, we've already seen Stonewall Jackson go out um, at the same place at Chancellorsville, uh, and now Longstreet's wounded at the Wilderness. So what's this going to do to Lee and his army? Well, what we're going to find in both cases is that uh, both sides are going to lose key commanders and have somewhat flawed command setups. So for the Confederates, uh, by 1864, uh, you have Jeb Stuart in command of the uh, cavalry, and Jeb Stuart is going to be killed in the first week of the campaign at Yellow Tavern on May 11th. Mm -hmm. So Lee's going to lose his most favorite horseman. Uh, Longstreet going down, Longstreet was his old uh, war horse, as he liked to go on, the, and the most reliable of the three corps commanders, the most experienced of the three corps commanders. Longstreet is always portrayed as deliberate, but when Longstreet hit, Longstreet hit hard. The other advantage, of course, was actually Longstreet knew uh, Grant personally. They had known each other in the Mexican-American War. Uh, Longstreet's wife and uh, Grant's wife were related. Uh, so he had a familiarity with Grant uh, that, that Lee did not. Uh, the two men were so far apart in rank and stationed during uh, uh, their pre-war military careers that they really had no meaningful encounters or chances to weigh uh, the strengths and weaknesses of each other. Uh, Lee's other two corps commanders um, uh, do not perform well. In 1864, Richard S. Ewell uh, eventually uh, has to be uh, replaced. Uh, A.P. Hill is also uh, ill during much of this campaign. So therefore, the, the, the four generals that Lee would rely upon normally are either out of commission due to what happens on the battlefield or they're subpar in terms of their health. Grant has the same thing though after a while. Um, uh, first of all, he's got this awkward command relationship uh, working through Meade and the Army of Potomac's three corps commanders, and then Ambrose Burnside is a fourth corps commander who's only eventually brought under Meade's charge. Burnside had not been a very successful offensive commander during this conflict. Uh, Governor Warren, um, who uh, became famous at Gettysburg for helping to rush forces to Little Round Top, uh, is now in command, and, and people find out that Warren, who seemed so promising on the battlefield, was not quite up to the task in many cases. 
Um, Hancock, who we all feature because of his activity during Gettysburg, we forget that he was also seriously wounded at Gettysburg and he wasn't recovering from that wound. Uh, and so he was a subpar corps commander in 1864. That leaves Uncle John Sedgwick of the Sixth Corps, and he's out of action, killed by a bullet on May 9th, uh, and uh, replaced by uh, a, a commander, Horatio Wright, who's not quite up to the task at the beginning. He'll, he'll become better over time. Uh, and then the uh, cavalry commander for uh, United States forces, Phil Sheridan, this is the first time he's really had to command a sizable force of cavalry. We, we think of him as a horseman, but um, after his early war experience, he usually been in charge of the infantry units. Um, and he's got to learn how to use uh, the, the cavalry and, and, and Brandt um, uses Sheridan to go right at Stuart and while it does result in Stuart's elimination on the battlefield. Uh, the Confederate horsemen are good enough to um, keep the Union horsemen in check uh, during much of this campaign. Uh, and so this is gonna become a, a real slugfest by two, uh, in which two very able army commanders are gonna find that the subordinates that they rely upon are not always up to the task for, you know, in Grant's case, he's unfamiliar with the uh, capabilities of those subordinates until he sees them tried under fire. Mm -hmm. And well, so you mentioned that Sedgwick is killed. Um, so Grant's going to have this draw. Maybe you could say a slight Confederate victory at the wilderness, but Grant doesn't turn back like his predecessors had. Um, so do you feel that this refusal to turn back was that was this necessary for the North to win the war? Um, what do you think this did to Northern morale? Because every other Union general who went in and got whipped went right back to Washington with their tail between their legs. But Grant's different. Well, well, certainly, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, people argue back and forth about who won the Battle of the Wilderness. Well, for, for the Confederates, the objective of the Battle of the Wilderness was to make Grant retreat. Um, they didn't get that. So they didn't get what they wanted. Grant did not pull back. And this is one of the differences between Grant and Lee. Grant can use battles to further the objectives of his campaign. Mm -hmm. Lee saw campaigns as climaxing in what he hoped would be decisive battle. So the relationship between campaigns and battles are different in the minds of the two men. Lee's entire Gettysburg campaign is looking for that big opportunity to deliver a decisive blow. Grant says, okay, we've achieved one thing in the wilderness. We're south of the river. Uh, we've given as good as we've, we've gotten. Both sides have, have suffered uh, uh, serious losses. And then Grant says, fine, now we'll go on, continue moving south. And for the Army of the Potomac in particular, the idea of a commander advancing after a battle um, was novel, uh, frankly, uh, that even at Antietam and Gettysburg, there'd been some delay before pursuits had come underway. There were understandable delays in both cases, um, but nevertheless, Grant knew how to, to um, uh, get people moving, saying, you know, we're gonna continue this. Uh, and that also meant that back in Washington, Abraham Lincoln uh, would understand that as Grant put it, there'd be no turning back. Uh, and that was new uh, for Lincoln as well. So people begin, 
to see this clash of titans is going to be a multi-round slugfest. Um, and, and what the pressure, I think, on Grant is, and a lot of people think that Grant's going to clobber Lee at one blow. I mean, yeah, I think you have to remember what civilian expectations of war happen to be and what models they use. And they think of a Waterloo, for example, so the size of battlefield clash. So they keep on looking for that and they never quite get it. That, the issue of how the public perceives battlefield success and failure is something we'll talk about again during this interview. But I, I think it's key to think at the beginning that Grant looks like he's winning, 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 but the, the final blow has not been struck. And people begin to say, wait a moment, I was anticipating something different than what I'm getting and maybe things aren't going well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I do want to dive into that because um, he's going to see some public uh, backlash here. So he doesn't he doesn't retreat back to Washington. He disengages and both armies head to Spotsylvania Courthouse uh, where they're going to engage. And as you mentioned, John Sedgwick, he, he's famously shot um, and killed at Spotsylvania Courthouse. So what kind of impact is this going to have on Grant's and on the Union forces during the battle? Oh, well, Sedgwick, you know, was beloved by his men, but it wasn't clear that Sedgwick was actually an excellent battlefield commander. Um, but Horatio White, uh, Wright is going to take some time to get up to speed because commanding a corps is different than commanding a division. We see that during the war, very capable division commanders are elevated to corps command. They're not always very good at it. Sometimes they'll lead to army command and they're not very good at it. Uh, because there are different kinds of responsibilities there. Um, so I don't think Sedgwick's um, uh, death is that critical. Uh, what I think becomes critical and begin to see it at Spotsylvania is that Grant begins to rely perhaps too much upon the second corps under Winfield Scott Hancock to deliver uh, his major blows because now he's a lack of confidence about Governor Warren. Uh, who seems hesitant on the battlefield, too curious about what other generals are doing and the like. Um, and they're beginning to find out that Warren, who, who Grant uh, uh, once thought very highly of, might not be um, the best man in that position, that he might uh, have served well as a chief of staff, for example. But as a corps commander, he, he's not up to snuff. And, and Ambrose Burnside is a problematic corps commander. So you're, you're somewhat stuck with these people because at the same time, if they're problematic, you've got to make sure that if you move them out, the next person can do that job. And that's not always clear. And of course, when you move that person out, then someone else has to become a division commander and the like. Uh, so um, this, is, this is not Grant's army yet. Um, it's still George Gordon Meade's army, um, and um, it's still an army that has a lot of uh, interesting infighting. Yeah, so they engage here uh, at Spotsylvania. They have this change in command under Sedgwick, uh, and then fighting is going to continue, and the most famous fighting is going to take place at the Mule Shoe. And again, Lee's army is going to be close to destruction, but they regroup and they push the Federals back. Uh, so what do you think accounts for this Confederate resilience, uh, this scrappy fighting? You know, it's 1864. They're running short on food. They're starting to see desertions. Um, 
So what, what do you think accounts for this Confederate will to fight? Well, first of all, I think one thing for the Confederate will to fight is uh, the physical presence of Robert E. Lee at both the Wilderness and Spotsylvania rallying his troops, uh, something he really hadn't had to do before. I mean, he put his life at risk. Uh, that's how desperate things had become. He didn't need to do that before. But for all the gallantry of the Confederates, they're fighting on the defensive. They're fighting uh, a war which now embraces field fortifications and entrenchments. Um, and the pressure's on the Yankees to attack. Uh, and Lee begins to understand that if uh, he launches any attacks, that he's abandoning those advantages. Grant wants to bring him out into the open. Um, and in fact, he's made, you know, Lee's made miscalculations, one of which did lead to the mule shoe that he uh, was basically caught uh, by surprise by that assault on, on May 12th. Uh, but the other thing I think is to look at uh, uh, the Army of the Potomac and the Ninth Corps at this time. Um, American military personnel in the United States uh, served uh, for three term, three years of service. Those three years, okay, you start counting from 1861 means that many of those enlistments are up in the spring and summer of 1864. Uh, that some of these volunteers have been augmented by conscripts and later volunteers and the like, but there's a significant part of the Army of the Potomac and the Ninth Corps uh, uh, where the soldiers are fighting their last months of combat. And, and we know from, other military conflicts, such as the Vietnam conflict, things called short-termist syndrome. And that is, you, you've made it through the war, you've made it through 35 months of the war, maybe you don't want to risk your life so much on the 36th uh, month, that final month. And so there are lots of reports of slightly wounded people going back. So we talk about casualty figures, but in a lot of cases that if you went to a, a, an aid station in, in behind federal lines and you'd been hit by a bullet of scratched or bruised, you were wounded. Well, you have two friends bring you back and all of a sudden, and, and maybe those friends don't come back quite so aggressively or so quickly. And maybe if you're slightly wounded, you might stay in hospital, be transferred to Washington and stay there. And we know this happened because there were finally orders issued at Washington telling people you're, you're well now, go back to the front. <laughs> uh, uh, so there are, the, the Army of the Potomac of 1864 is not necessarily the Army of Potomac of, let's say, 1862 under George McClellan or 1863 under Meade at Gettysburg. There are people leaving, drifting away. There's going to be about a 50% attrition in terms of reenlistment of the guys who signed up, the boys of 1861. So they're not always going to be so enthusiastic about fighting and the conscripts that replace them, the bounty hunter, you know, jumpers and the like, um, they're not always such, uh, so capable in combat as their predecessors. In fact, you know, some of the best soldiers uh, in the Army of the Potomac and the Ninth Corps in 1864, and they start out in the Ninth Corps, uh, were the African-American soldiers who might have been inexperienced and were only being trained. So in that sense, they were raw. But for obvious reasons, their morale and motivation was rather high. Um, and they were committed to a cause that, that was personal uh, to them. 
uh, and the people for whom they fought uh, that went beyond union uh, also went uh, to freedom. And uh, it's interesting that the uh, uh, Grant and Meade are not necessarily eager to use those troops at first. Grant is more in favor of using them than Meade is. Um, but there's some, you know, there's some racial prejudice there, but there's also a, a reasonable a fear that you don't want to use black troops in a situation where they may get cut up and then you're told you use them heartlessly as cannon fodder. So the fact of the matter is that while the Confederate army is still fighting, even with the, the, the slow erosion of resources and the like, and the fact that it's hard to reinforce them, or the reinforcements will come and we, we can talk about why that happens. The Army of the Potomac there's a sizable part of that army that can't wait to go home. So Lee's objective here to not necessarily defeat the Union um, on the battlefield, more to defeat their spirit so Lincoln's not reelected. At this point, it sounds like he's got a good shot at it. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. But one of the reasons is because other parts of Grant's campaign fall apart. We concentrate in the Overland campaign. And we forget that Grant actually had a larger picture of what he was going to do in Virginia in 1864. And in fact, originally proposed to Abraham Lincoln uh, that uh, what he wanted to do was to leave Meade with a sufficient force to keep Lee in check in Virginia, and then take the force of about 60,000 men and invade North Carolina and cut off the Confederacy from the South and force Lee either to launch a desperate assault against Meade or come South and abandon Virginia. That home field advantage that Lee had was much more Virginia than the Confederacy as a whole. So uh, Lincoln says, I don't want to do that. And there are interesting reasons, including that that looks a little too much like something George McClellan might develop. So, um, Grant says, fine, I'll come up with a campaign where I have a force that goes south through the Shenandoah Valley and will take that way from the Confederacy, but it's commanded by a general who owes his appointment to um, his supposed political value, a fellow named Franz Siegel, and, and Siegel fails. He's turned back at the Battle of New Market on May 15th during the Spotsylvania fight. Uh, Grant then says, we'll take another army. We're going to build an army called the Army of the James, and that army is going to go up the James River, and it's going to attack Richmond and Petersburg and threaten it, and Lee's going to have to make a decision. Do I defend my capital, or, or do I have to launch a desperation assault against the Army of Potomac? That's what Lee, you know, would be confronted with had Butler been a capable field commander. Benjamin Butler, again, owed his commission, his seniority, to his perceived political importance. And so what we find out in 1864 in Virginia with these two subordinate offenses is we've talked about the political context in which these operations are taking place. And here are two generals who owe their command to their perceived political importance. They fumble their combat assignments, which leads to a negative political impact about this. And it also forces all the attention upon Grant. At the same time, Lee can pull people from these other operations now that he's trying to get reinforcements. Uh, so the campaign that we see 
evolve is not the campaign that Grant had planned to have uh, when the spring uh, campaigning began. Yeah, I think as Lincoln said, those who aren't skinning hold a leg, right, when they ask them about this five-part plan. Uh, but it doesn't go very well, uh, as you said, for Grant. Uh, there's a lot of blunders uh, on these different branches. So they disengage at Spotsylvania. Uh, then Philip Sheridan engages, as you mentioned, at Yellow Tavern with Jeb Stewart. Stewart's mortally wounded. Uh, and then Grant writes Lee, and he says, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Uh, so this is kind of that famous quote. So what do you think accounts for this mindset in Grant? Uh, how important was it for the Union at this point in 1864, as you mentioned, with Franz Siegel, with Benjamin Butler's plans failing, with Nathaniel Banks? All these Union generals have failed. Things aren't looking great. So how important is it that he has a commander who will fight it out all summer? It's critical for Lincoln. Uh, that, and, and it's certainly critical that Grant persists. Uh, because you, you're not going to be able to replace Grant. Um, that's why you give him the third star, made him a lieutenant general, made him general-in-chief of the armies of the United States. Uh, you've said he's the guy, uh, for better and for worse. Uh, and um, you you have to realize, if you're Abraham Lincoln at that time, that you've you know placed Grant under certain handicaps, including dealing with people like Butler and Siegel. Um, and uh, you, 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 in the past, you have interfered with the operations of the armies, um, and, and you've got to let Grant do what he's supposed to do. You can still give him advice. Um, you can still make your feelings known, um, but it's time to give you know, Grant a, a long leash and, and see what happens. And after all, Lincoln's impressed by Grant's willingness to continue to, to punch and punch again. Um, but I think you also remember one thing about Lincoln, um, uh, because we see Lincoln as a very humane, gentle, thoughtful man. But after the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862, he turned to a eight said, you know, if we fought Fredericksburg every week, we would win. We suffer terrible casualties, but we would eventually destroy the army in Northern Virginia. And so he says, I, I need to find the general who can face the awful arithmetic mm. of continuous fighting. And so look at how many battles we've already talked about and more we're going to talk about that are taking place within a fairly compressed period of time. Uh, whereas what had happened up to that point is you would fight a battle and then you'd rest for a while, and then you'd fight a battle, and then you'd rest for a while. And what was really a strategic stalemate, Grant's advancing, he continues to, to bash away at Lee. Um, he's not giving Lee a, a chance to regain his footing. Uh, he's continuing down towards Richmond. Uh, it's a kind of generalship that had not been seen uh, in the... Uh, uh, Virginia theater during the conflict. Well, and you mentioned that everything's kind of compressed. Uh, the battles are compressed as are the death tolls. So we have about 60,000 soldiers die in just a month um, between the wilderness, Spotsylvania, Yellow Tavern. Uh, so we really see an acceleration of the death. So why do you think fighting had become so brutal at this point? Um, was there any way to avoid this kind of loss of life? It sounds like there's not. You just kind of have to wear down the Confederacy. 
No, there isn't. I mean, the fact of the matter is we say, oh, look at those horrible casualties. And then we remember there are 51,000 casualties at Gettysburg over three days of combat. Civil War combat was fairly bloody, at least in terms of how Americans viewed combat. If you look at other European wars at this time, actually their casualty rates are higher. Um, the, the real question is, you know, how can you continue to withstand uh, this pummeling? You know, Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville and Gettysburg together are pretty bloody uh, trio of conflict. And yet, what do you get out of them? Antietam's the bloodiest single day of the Civil War. What was achieved? I mean, Lee was checked um, in his invasion, but uh, hung on to fight another day. Um, so the real, what would, I think people began to understand by 1864 is battle itself was inconclusive. It's what you did with the battles that counted. And that's, that's where Grant's different than Lee, uh, that Lee's looking for that knockout punch and, and Grant is saying, there is no knockout punch until I can deprive you of your supplies and I can pin you in place, which means I'm going to persist. Uh, I'm going to continue to, to um, uh, strike at you, and I'm going to move you down ever closer to your capital. Because once I have you outside of Richmond and Petersburg, if I can't beat you by then, I can at least hold you in place while other armies may be faring better, like William T. Sherman's army in Georgia. Yeah, and, and we'll get to Sherman here. So, so we have a Yellow Tavern. Uh, disengage again, and then Grant and Lee are going to meet once again at Cold Harbor. Now, this is infamous. This is the one uh, assault that Grant regrets. Grant orders a frontal assault on Lee's men who are heavily entrenched, and we're going to see 12,000 usual Union casualties to just 1,500 for the Confederacy, and this is a disaster for the Union. So why do you think Grant made the decision to make a frontal assault when these Napoleonic tactics throughout the war had already become so outdated? Is he frustrated that he hasn't beat Lee at this point? Um, does he trying a, a July 3rd repeat where he hopes if he just hits them hard enough, they'll break? What, what plays into this decision? He actually is fairly optimistic because they thought that Robert E. Lee had had opportunities to strike back at North Anna between Spotsylvania and Cold Harbor and, and had not done so. And the, the sign he got was that perhaps the Confederates are losing their aggressive edge and one more attack might push them over the edge. Now, it, it, during the what's called the Battle of Cold Harbor, which if you look at the uh, you know, U.S. military records is June 1 through 12th. There are about 12,000 casualties, dead, wounded, and missing. But the assault itself on, on June 3rd, that has received so much attention and myth and war about the American Civil War. Um, uh, more uh, recent studies have suggested perhaps we've exaggerated um, uh, the uh, casualty toll. Uh, by, and we've also exaggerated these uh, almost horrific tales of 7,000 men felled in 30 minutes and the like. So as we've looked at the battle, as opposed to simply assuming the results, um, uh, we see a somewhat different thing. There are fewer people who get, uh, um, uh, fewer, fewer the attackers fall at a cold harbor than fell on July 3 at Gettysburg. 
Um, and the real question is, what's the overall impact of this? Grant regrets the assault, not just, he understands that, you know, fighting means people die. Um, and that's an awesome responsibility, terrible responsibility for a commander's shoulder. Um, but when you don't get any results as a, 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 as a consequence of all that human sacrifice, that's the tragedy. Um, that you're, you're not able to do that. And at Cold Harbor, um, basically the United States command system breaks down. Uh, that Grant gives orders to Meade, who is in charge of the military operation itself. And Meade issues orders to his core commanders who by and large don't do their jobs of reconnoitering, seeing where the enemy is strong, where the enemy positions locate, where the entrenchments are like. So it's a badly uncoordinated attack for which the, the attackers are ill-prepared and it's a failure of command. But Meade himself would say, and he wrote to his wife afterwards, I, I was in command of the field all day. Grant actually has to write up to him and says, I'm going to pull the plug on this. I don't think anything's going on here. So, and, and, and you know, you would not, it's interesting that Meade would brag about this. Meade doesn't write home and say, by the way, that Grant's an idiot. He actually writes back to his wife and says, I was in command. It was really good. Um, and, and so I think that the, the issue is that Cold Harbor becomes symbolically important uh, to this campaign in a way that, that may be exaggerated. What, what it does do, however, is it convinces Grant that this pounding against Lee north of the James River, uh, as they're moving closer and closer to Richmond, isn't sufficient. And he... He's always had plan B in his back pocket. And that is if you don't beat them north of the James, you cross the James River, head south, threaten the city of Petersburg, because if you take Petersburg, uh, Richmond is isolated and will fall. Yeah, well, Grant, after Cold Harbor, gets this reputation in the northern press as a butcher. This is something that's going to continue. Um, so I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it sounds to me that you feel this isn't true. He's not a butcher. He's just doing what needs to be done. Is that fair? And perhaps even um, some of the reanalysis of Grant in recent years would share now um, with Ron White uh, that he's not a butcher. Uh, he was a strong battlefield commander. Do you agree with those? Uh, well, I mean, butcher means two things. Butcher means two things. And I think, you know, we, we, we've now had about 30 years uh, of uh, revising or and reassessing Grant uh, in a number of areas. And uh, uh, Ron White did a good job of bringing some of that together. And uh, Ron Cherno has offered a, a very readable synthesis of about three decades of Grant scholarship. Um, what I think we, we've learned, however, as we, we go through this, is number one, uh, we associate the term butcher with heartless, mindless, almost plodding ahead ham-handedly. And, and anyone who understands Grant understands that he was actually quite moved by what was going on in the battlefield, that he didn't like the bloodshed um, at all. Um, and, and would have loved to have done something different, but he, he knew that for various reasons, he, he was going to have to fight uh, the way he fought, fought again. This North Carolina operation is not the invention of an unimaginative mind. Um, 
and uh, the Vicksburg campaign. There are fewer people he loses during the entire Vicksburg campaign than are casualties at Cold Harbor. Uh, so you, you look at the um, uh, Grant was actually uh, could be very skilled uh, when it came to these issues. The other point, though, is that all these battles are taking place within basically a 40 to 50 day period. But the result of those battles is that Grant has to be pinned around Richmond and Petersburg and uh, uh, with serious manpower and supply problems. Um, the, the problem for Grant has been that in the process, he's also worn his army down a bit. Uh, and the popular perception of what's happening is, oh, the two armies are bogged down. It's a siege. Gee, didn't McClellan do that several years ago, which he really hadn't. Um, and he'd been driven away rather easily by Lee. Um, so, but it looks different because people are looking for that one big battle. And what you're finding out in 1864 is you can't have that big battle. Uh, that it, it brings decisive results uh, and brings the campaign to a close. Rather, you're pounding away, pounding away. Maybe you get lucky. Maybe something happens. Uh, but the odds are you're going to be stuck. Grant almost captures Petersburg when he tries his move. Once again, subordinates begin to fumble lost opportunities. And so you're, you're stuck with a siege that looks like a stalemate, but it's a much different stalemate than had prevailed in the Eastern theater up to this time. And Grant's got, got a strategic advantage in 1864 that no Union general had had up to that time in, in the state, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Yeah, and it's inevitable to have some fumbling, I would imagine, by 1864, with the amount of casualties and battles you faced, um, you're going to have a lot of commanders who are out of commission. So as you mentioned, the fighting kind of settles down um, outside of Petersburg, and then they lead, they decide to make this infamous decision to tunnel under the Confederate lines, blow a hole in the defenses, um, and it's initially a success. They do blow a hole in the defenses, but they fail to to seal the gap and Grant and Meade had decided to, well, actually Burnside had trained a regiment to send in of African-American soldiers. And then Grant and Meade decided to send in a white regiment instead. Uh, and this white regiment wasn't trained for this mission. So what do you think accounts for this last minute change? Is it uh, racist ideology? Is it, as you mentioned earlier, not wanting African-Americans to be cannon fodder? What, goes into this decision because this kind of fumbles the whole operation. Well, well, different people make different decisions. And, and, and so there's a, a, an African-American division uh, that's trained for this operation. But it's not clear how much training they'd actually undergone. Um, by this time, Grant is actually fairly convinced that African-American troops can more than hold their own on the battlefield because they had been engaged in other battles during the campaign and would be down the road. Uh, Meade's not quite so sure. Um, and uh, there's also some doubt about whether Burnside uh, is a capable corps commander um, at this time. Um, and so it is Meade who says, you know, we don't want this with a cannon fodder. And, and Grant accepts that explanation. Um, then 
Uh, the commander that is uh, assigned to this is chosen by a lot. They draw straws. And the fellow who wins, so to speak, James Luddy, is an utter incompetent uh, and a drunkard. Um, and rather than uh, have his men take advantage of the hole to go around the hole and, and drive the Confederates back, uh, soldiers simply go into the hole and, and, and can't get out. And so it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I think if Grant's going to be uh, blamed on anything in this, and I, you know, you could say, gee, he should have used the African American soldiers, but we don't know what that result would have been. It probably would have been that Grant did not uh, carefully supervise this operation because by this time he was familiar with the shortcomings of Meade and especially Burnside, and to leave this in their hands. Um, especially when you're, you know, drawing straws for who's going to be the lead division. Uh, so um, that's a, that's something that Grant should shoulder blame for in a different way. So it's interesting that while Grant has given a lot of blame for Cold Harbor, where Meade is in charge of things, and Meade has his chance to fight the battle he wants and, and, and fumbles it, uh, at the uh, and at the, at the crater, I wouldn't be so generous to Grant because now Grant has seen these people operate now for several months. Um, and he uh, would have been wise, I think, to have paid a lot more careful attention uh, to what was going on. I mean, he's saddened by the result. He, he thought that it was an excellent opportunity to score, to score a decisive uh, outcome. Um, he had mined underneath the Vicksburg fortifications as well. Uh, so um, it was a, a, a sad opportunity lost. And so this is another blunder for the Union. Um, so now we've taken a look at the wilderness, at Spotsylvania Courthouse, Cold Harbor, uh, Petersburg, and things, like you said, there's not that decisive blow they want to see. So if we could pull a pin out at this point, um, what do you think the mood of the nation is, and specifically the presidential election, right? Lincoln's looking to win a second term in office here. Um, do you think he stands a good chance at this point, 1864, if things continue down this path? He certainly didn't think he did. Okay, he understood that this was going to take a lot of fighting and, and, and the like. Uh, but the appearance of a stalemate and the casualty list, however necessary, it's Lincoln who all of a sudden isn't able to face the awful arithmetic. And he says, could you do these things with fewer losses? And Grant's replies, no, really, that, you know, unfortunately, this is the cost of war. And if you want something different, um, you got to take different risks. Um, so, and, and, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, but was also, I think, embarrassing uh, to Lincoln, uh, where the operations of Jubal early in the Shenandoah Valley uh, threatened the outskirts of Washington in mid-July 1864. And then at the same time as the Battle of the Crater, uh, early and other Confederate forces had re-entered Pennsylvania and actually burned down the town of Chambersburg uh, at, at the same time. And this is humiliating. Uh, there's still some Confederate force on the loose that, if nothing else, looks like an irritant. So by the end of July 1864, Lincoln's in trouble. He knows this. Um, the Democrats are saying that the war is a failure. Um, they're moving to nominate George McClellan, uh, the symbol of all that's wrong with the Union war effort as their uh, 
a presidential candidate. Uh, there is pressure being placed on Lincoln uh, to uh, abandon emancipation as a requirement for peace negotiations with the Confederacy. Um, and, and in fact, Lincoln sort of mismanages some of this during this time. He entrusts people to talk to Confederate authorities or basically um, uh, embarrass uh, their United States counterparts. And so it looks like Lincoln, in the eyes of many Northern voters, is asking white people to die for black freedom. And given uh, the racial attitudes that I'm a lot of white people are saying, why should I sacrifice my, my husbands, my fathers, my sons uh, for black people? Um, and so he's actually getting advice from uh, certain people that he should drop emancipation as prerequisite for uh, peace negotiations. And the Confederacy shows no actual interest in surrendering whatsoever. And the Confederacy would have shown no interest whatsoever in abandoning slavery, um, because without slavery, why is there a Confederacy in the first place? Um, so uh, th this is a, becoming a big issue for Lincoln. It doesn't look good. Public perceptions of the military situation in July are that Confederates can still march north of the Potomac and conduct irritating raids and scare people. Uh, that Grant uh, is, is in a quagmire, stalemate against Lee, um, that although Lee cannot pull a rabbit out of the hat as he has before, um, he, he is still dangerous. And they look elsewhere and they look out towards Georgia and William T. Sherman is conducting a siege of Atlanta. And that looks like a stalemate. So where's that hopeful attitude of the spring where one big battle, we're going to win the whole thing. That's not what it looks like at that point. And so the public begins to say, you know, maybe this isn't working. Maybe we, we need to think about something else. So at that point, I would argue, Lee at that moment looks like he's winning because he's gotten inside the heads of the Northern voter. Mm. Unfortunately for Lee, the election's gonna take place in November. It's not gonna take place in August. So Grant still has some time to produce results. And he does because finally the long-term strategic plan proves successful. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about Jubal early here in a second, but I want to talk about a Lincoln quote first. So he writes his cabinet and states, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be reelected. Then it will be my duty to cooperate with the president-elect to save the union and the election and the inauguration, as he will have secured his election on such grounds that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. So if Lincoln hadn't won this election, if McClellan is elected, what are his plans? So what's, what's his platform that he's running on? What do you think the union would look like if he takes the reins? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the wording of what's called the blind memorandum carefully, it doesn't actually say that George McClellan would surrender so much as the situation that made a McClellan victory possible might force McClellan's hand. McClellan had actually made very clear that he was still committed for a war uh, of reunion, uh, that, that he, he still believed in the destruction of the Confederacy. 
Uh, he was not, however, committed to emancipation. Uh, and in fact, thought that was a divisive issue, both in the Northern public and of course, among Confederates, he said that will embitter them still more. So his attitude on emancipation would have been significantly different uh, than Lincoln's because he believed that in fact, it was a negative. Um, now, what would have happened had McClellan won? Well, first of all, we'd have to think what, what is supposed to happen in those winter months uh, between election day and March 4th, 1865. Um, and just you know, Lincoln would be a lame duck uh, and he might want to push forward, but other people might say, well, let's let the new guy have a chance. Uh, so we, we don't know. But the fact of the matter is that, that Lincoln believes that once it's President McClellan, that the Democrats who got McClellan elected are not going to pay attention to McClellan's wishes. They're going to talk about ending the war because it's a failure. Mm. Yeah, hard to answer those hypotheticals in history, but definitely would have changed a lot. Uh, we would have never seen the 13th Amendment likely. Uh, so you mentioned Jubal Early leads this campaign, 14,000 Confederates into the Shenandoah Valley, causing havoc. He threatens Washington, D.C. Um, so I, I'm curious, is his goal here kind of the same as Lee's? Is it just to scare northern voters into voting Democrat instead of Republican? And how do you feel about Early as a commander? Is he very effective in his mission here? Well, he's sort of effective in his mission in mid-July. I mean, they do reach the outskirts of basically the, what we today have the, as the beltway around Washington. He does reach those areas. Uh, Grant has to shift uh, significant reinforcements in that area. Uh, that well, Washington was vulnerable, if only for a short time. And, and that it's, it isn't as if early would have captured Washington and been able to hold it. He would not have, um, but he certainly got people nervous. Uh, and it looks bad. Again, public perception uh, is critical here that, you know, the, if things are going so well, then how come the Confederates can still threaten Washington? And the same thing with the burning in Chambersburg, uh, which was often overlooked, but that's happening the same day as the crater. So the the impact of these two events at the same time are like, wait a moment, we, we, we uh, were utter failures in this uh, mining operation, but we've also still vulnerable. Our armies cannot protect uh, our civilians and the town's been burned down as a result, even though that, that I think is an exaggeration. Um, but again, the vision is we're not doing well. Um, and, and so as July turns into August, that's why Lincoln during those three weeks after those two, two, uh, events, uh, writes that blind memorandum that's 23 days later. Uh, and yet the meantime, he does say, look, I'm not going to abandon emancipation. Uh, this is the, 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 to, to do that is to create so many problems. That's the stupidest thing I could do. And it would be the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have African-Americans fight for your cause and say, we're not going to destroy slavery, for example. Right. Uh, so you've got to show a commitment to all of your soldiers. And by 1864, a significant percentage 
of United States personnel, military personnel, are African American. Yeah, so we have the Overland campaign, uh, we have Jubal Early, uh, and we have the election loop. Uh, and then uh, William Sherman's going to begin his uh, movements towards Atlanta. Uh, he is in command of three armies and he's facing off against Joseph Johnson, uh, Johnston, excuse me. So who do you feel at the beginning of this campaign? We talked Grant and Lee, um, when we have Sherman versus Johnston, who do you feel has the edge here? Um, what are they looking to accomplish? Well, uh, Sh Sherman has the edge, but the interesting thing about both Sherman and Johnston is they're not very good battlefield commanders. Um, neither one is. Sherman, we talk about Sherman's marches, but we don't talk about Sherman's battles. <laughs> Sherman waged a war maneuver uh, and, and pushed Johnston back. And Johnston was only too willing to comply. He'd done this in 1862 against George McClellan as well. And so uh, Sherman knows you can threaten the one, this a one, basically one supply line that both armies are using, the railroad from Chattanooga to Atlanta. And so it's very simple, but it's a war maneuver which uh, Sherman is able to conduct against Johnston because Johnston does not stand and fight uh, the way that Lee stood and fought, or in fact, you know, the wilderness actually initiated their offensive operations. Uh, there's one frontal assault, uh, again, with no real result at Kennesaw Mountain. Um, and uh, uh, Sherman realizes the frontal assault's not going to work. But by mid-July, his forces are reaching the outskirts of Atlanta, just as Brand's forces are outside Richmond and Petersburg. And at that moment, the Confederate President Jefferson Davis decides to appoint a new commander. Uh, to stop Sherman outside Atlanta. Yeah, so Jefferson Davis appoints John Bell Hood. Um, obviously, he wasn't a fan of Johnston to begin with. Um, do you think this is a smart decision? Is this a good maneuver to put uh, Hood in command and get rid of Johnston? It's not quite clear what else the, uh, Davis could have done. Maybe appointed a different general. Uh, than, than Hood, but Hood is a good example of a, a man who was a very capable brigade commander with the Texas Brigade, a, a very hard-fighting division commander. As a corps commander, he was slipping a little bit. As an army commander, he was probably in above his head. Um, but I, had he retained Johnston in there, he had no faith in Johnston. Uh, Johnston was not willing to give any guarantees that he was willing to attack Sherman at all and really had no plan about how to keep Sherman outside of Atlanta. Uh, had, had, had Johnston stayed in command, Sherman still would have taken Atlanta would be my answer to that sort of counterfactual. Were there other Confederate generals around who could, could command armies? Maybe, but maybe not. And again, there are, there are people that you know, um, students from Confederate military history focus on, say, maybe this guy, maybe this guy. But again, very capable division commanders, not so capable as corps commanders. They might have had exactly the same problem uh, that John Bell Hood ended up encountering as an army commander. 
And before we get into some of these battles, the Battle of Atlanta, um, these three kind of separate battles that make it up, I want to ask about the tactics at this point. So it's going on in the East during the Overland campaign. It's going on here um, for Atlanta. It's starting to develop into almost World War I style trench warfare. Um, so is this going to play into World War I? What kind of impact is this going to have um, on the European wars? Why is it um, turning into this kind of war? Well, it's turning into this war in part because of some of the firepower on the battlefield. But by the time of World War, what's interesting, first of all, is if, if European generals had learned from the American Civil War, they would have started World War I in entrenchments. They didn't. Okay. Um, and in fact, they wouldn't have had uh, cavalry charge machine gun nests. Uh, they wouldn't have had a whole bunch of things happen that happened. Uh, and uh, uh, in part because they thought the uh, American military forces on both sides were not professional enough, were not trained enough, uh, and they were basically armed mobs. So they learned very little from the American Civil War. Um, by, by World War I, they've got rifles that can fire more frequently at longer distances. The machine gun is now part of the battlefield in a way that it had not been during the American Civil War. So, you, and, and the artillery has become massive uh, in pulverizing opposing positions. And you can, now you don't need to use your cavalry to conduct reconnaissance, you use air power. Uh, to conduct reconnaissance. And yet, you will notice that the early months of World War I are fought as if it's a Napoleonic conflict. Uh, and, and it's very fluid. And it's not until the latter part of 1914, especially the Western Front, that people begin to dig in. Uh, and we get the trench warfare that we you know, has become uh, associated with World War One, And yet again, there are all these efforts to try to break those trench lines. And, you know, what, what ends up happening, again, is a gigantic war of resources and attrition uh, uh, in which the American arrival on the Western Front proves key because by 1918, the, the Germans are liberated from having to fight a two-front war, basically, because of, of the Russian Revolution and the withdrawal of Russian forces from the conflict. So, again, it'd be much more manpower. It is interesting that after World War I, British military theorists, and most famous, a guy named John F.C. Fuller, uh, began to look at the Civil War and say, gee, this is what we should have learned. And actually, Grant's reputation starts rising among European, especially British military theorists uh, uh, in the, uh, the post-World War I period. They say he understood what was going on. And, and you could say that for all the criticism Grant gets, um, you, and, and that criticism really sounds like it's, it's contemporary that there were people who thought Grant could have thought a more elegant war, and yet the advocates of a more elegant war were not successful, George McClellan. Uh, and uh, the other criticism from the Confederates to say, oh, we were outnumbered, it was inevitable, um, et cetera. But um, they didn't feel about that at the time. 
Uh, and in fact, if we think that Confederate military defeat was inevitable, the first thing we have to conclude is Robert E. Lee was insane uh, because he wouldn't accept the, the, the facts of the situation and all the Confederates were insane. Um, the smaller side had won wars and would win wars in the future. The American Revolution and Vietnam are two really good examples of this. Right, yeah, the Confederates kind of saw themselves as another American Revolution, so that would make perfect sense. Um, so John Belt, well, and I also want to point out to the listeners that I, I think it's important we learn from history, especially my students, they tend to, not, you know, zone out in history class. But here you're saying if we learn from history, World War One, a lot of lives could have been saved. So it is important if you're listening. Uh, but so John Bell Hood takes over. He goes on the offensive. Uh, he tries to attack uh, Corps Commander General Thomas's army at Peachtree Creek. He tries to flank the Federals at the Battle of Atlanta on the 22nd, and then he attacks Howard's army at Ezra Church on the 25th through 27th. So he's being very offensive-minded, very aggressive, a lot different than Johnston, who was constantly retreating, and that's what he was being criticized for. So do you feel this is the best strategic move here, uh, or should he have perhaps tried to be a little more defensive like Lee was being and try to bleed Sherman and these three armies he's in command of? I think, I think the problem is that Hood doesn't have a lot of choices. If you sit there, then you allow uh, Sherman freedom of movement to cut off uh, Atlanta's uh, railroad links with the rest of the Confederacy. Uh, you have to push back at some point. Even Johnston had pushed back uh, in 1862 at uh, Seven Pines uh, where he was wounded. Um, so you'd have to, the, the, the issue for Hood I think is, um, was he reckless uh, in his attacks? Uh, were they not well thought out? Were they ill-planned? Uh, and, 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 you know, they didn't have the staying power to deliver the kind of blow that Hood uh, had to deliver. But I think there was a lot of expectation that the Confederates had to do something. Um, and in Lee's case, it was early, uh, to, to Early's operations, because Lee doesn't conduct very impressive operations against Grant in the Richmond-Petersburg sector of Virginia. Um, so what are you going to do? But if you sit there, sooner or later, you're in trouble. So it, it's everyone is very good at playing armchair general and saying this is what they should have done. Right. Uh, but it's not clear that what you think they should have done would have been any more successful. I think what, what people overlook is that Grant had a Sherman and Lee did not. Mm -hmm. that, that, Grant, that Lee before it, a capable corps commanders who, who failed in independent operations once they had to command significant armies. I, in the case of Longstreet, uh, Jackson had done well in the Shenandoah Valley, but those armies were more of the size that uh, Jubal Early was uh, maneuvering around. And basically, Jackson succeeded because the Union forces never got their act together in the Shenandoah Valley. Mm -hmm. But the, the, one of the keys to Grant's strategy is that he has somebody who will execute his plan in Sherman. 
and, and an army and a, a trio of armies, uh, several of which have been battle tested and are uh, commanded by very capable individuals. Uh, and he basically has beaten the Confederate Army of Tennessee like a drum for several years. And he can trust Sherman to continue that work. And so it's not like that army had done well against Grant and Sherman in the past. Mm. Well, so Hood tries these kind of desperate attacks. Uh, they fail. And then after a five-week bombardment of Atlanta, Hood has to abandon the city on September 1st through 2nd. Uh, so by the time we kind of get to the end of the summer of 1864, things didn't start out well for the Union. Um, Grant's five part plan. Three of them have already failed. Uh, the Overland campaign sitting in a stalemate uh, in, the West, in the Eastern Theater. Uh, but something finally gives in the West with the fall of Atlanta. So what does this do for Lincoln's chance at re-election? Um, is this going to help him win the election? Perhaps is this the most important thing that helped him? Well, yeah, but uh, once again, I think it's really important to understand how public is uh, viewing things versus what's really going on. Once Atlanta was besieged by Sherman and Sherman began systematically cutting the railings that uh, uh, held Atlanta, the rest of the South and gave it its strategic value. Atlanta was useless. Uh, but the idea of entering an enemy city that had been abandoned, remember John Hood's army gets out of there and is still a military threat, but you march into the empty city, boy, that looks like a great victory in the minds of the public. Um, you know, it was very symbolic at that point, only because Sherman had really already taken Atlanta out of the conflict. It would have been probably more useful to keep the Confederates in Atlanta, isolated and starving. Um, uh, he allowed them to escape, but no one saw cared about that because they, oh, you got the city. Uh, and then several weeks later, Phil Sheridan finally, uh, now put in command of all the forces around Washington, goes out after early, taking his time, but finally he does so, a little prodding from Grant, and smashes early at a really, you know, dramatic battle at Winchester, and then another one at Fisher's Hill, and then a month later at Cedar Creek, even a more romantic battle poems about shirt and coming to rescue the situation and the like. Um, and those conflicts fed the romance of war that persists in the eyes of the Northern public. And so they looked like victory. They smelled like victory. They tasted like victory. And in, in this case, the, the you know, Grant's great achievement uh, was to tell Lee, you're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to turn, flip the table again, turn the tables on us. You're stuck. Lee could not pull his rabbit out of a hat. And so all of a sudden, people begin to say, see, I guess the plan's working after all. And, mm -hmm. and because the continuous coordinated pressure that Grant's strategy called for Sooner or later, the Confederacy was going to collapse somewhere because they didn't have the manpower. Uh, and, and, and the question was, could you do it 
in enough time to assure Lincoln's reelection. And if you could, and that's, you know, if there's any fault going to be assigned to Hood, it's that Hood's attacks wore down his own army a bit to the extent that he might not have been able to afford those kind of losses and hastened uh, this process uh, to make sure that uh, the Confederacy cracked somewhere in time for uh, the Northern public to give Lincoln four more years as president. So by the time the summer of 1864 winds down, that's kind of the mood in the North, but what's the mood in the South? Are they still clinging to a chance for victory or are they kind of realizing it's inevitable at this point? I, I think, I think after Lincoln's reelection, they begin to say, "Uh Oh, now we're in trouble uh, because they don't always have an accurate assessment of the situation. Civil war newspapers are notorious for not being accurate uh, purveyors of the situation. And so, yeah, they thought, gee, that's too bad. Atlanta fell, but you know, Lee's still there. We're going to be able to uh, be fine. And, you know, we still think the Democrats are going to win. And, and then the results come back and, and Lincoln wins re-election and people all of a sudden say, oh, I think we might be in serious trouble. And yet, the, and to the extent that, you know, now Confederate authorities are openly talking about enlisting African-Americans uh, in their own armies. Uh, and, and the opposition of that is, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we just give up? Uh, you know, our whole, the whole rationale for what we did this is going out the window if we uh, enlist African-Americans. So, but I, I think a key thing about the election of 1864, which shows the uh, narrowness of Union victory, is that after Antietam, excuse me, after Atlanta, after Mobile Bay, after uh, Winchester, after Cedar Creek, People look at the electoral vote and they say, boy, Lincoln got 212 electoral votes to 21 for George McClellan. That's an overwhelming victory. But in the popular vote, and remember, the South isn't voting in this election. Lincoln only gets 55% of the popular vote. So that means if one out of 20 people had changed their minds, it would have been a dead heat in the popular vote. Uh, so even with all those military successes, Lincoln's margin of victory in 1864 is not tremendous. That's, that's kind of long-term consequences for Reconstruction when you begin to understand that a lot of people who voted for Lincoln were not voting for the destruction of slavery and certainly not for the equality of African-Americans. They were voting to preserve the Union and they believed that McClellan and the Democrats would not do that. Right. So McClellan's their choice to preserve the union, but not have to uh, give African-Americans equality. That's right. Um, so that's kind of a overview of the summer of uh, 1864. It ends, obviously, with the reelection, as you just mentioned, of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and the tides kind of really start to turn there. The pressure is really on the Confederacy. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share about the summer that we haven't touched on? Well, I think, you know, first of all, there, there are moments of great determination by both Lincoln and Grant. Grant persists in his military operations. Um, 
Uh, he's not deterred by momentary setbacks. Lincoln is not deterred uh, by uh, faltering political hopes uh, from uh, restating his support for emancipation. He's willing to go down fighting on the emancipation point, if need be. And so both these guys have to make decisions uh, to persist in the course that they've, they've chosen to pursue uh, against what seem to be daunting odds. Um, if there's one criticism that can be made of the Confederates during this time, it's that at a, after the fall of Atlanta in particular, they really didn't have any more magic tricks in their box to pull out in the, the time between that and, and election day, 1864. It's really not a good effort to, to, to try to reverse the course of events. And that is a tribute to Grant's effectiveness as a commander is to deprive Lee in particular of his counterpunch. And by taking Jubal early seriously, um, he diverts troops which would have been earmarked for Richmond and Petersburg. So the siege is going to be prolonged. But those troops are used to knock early out. And in, in victories which are dashing and romantic, and we have paintings of them, and sculptures of Sheridan writing to rescue his command at Cedar Creek, and poems and songs, and, and it, it's great stuff. Grant does one other thing that I think is not appreciated at this time. And, and Sherman, early on, after he fall, takes it Atlanta, says, you know, Atlanta's kind of like an albatross around my neck because my supply line still runs back to Chattanooga. It's just that one rail line. We're in trouble. And, and he says, so I want to undertake a march. I want to threaten the Confederacy. I want to get in their heads. I want to destroy things. But I also want to show the Confederate civilians that their government can't protect them. And Grant says, well, that's a really interesting idea. If you can't defeat the Confederate army, Hood's army, fine. Um, if you feel they're too elusive, fine. He, he knew that Sherman's strength was not as a battlefield commander. But he does tell Sherman, but you can't start until after the election. You can't start until Lincoln's reelected. I'm not going to risk you having a military setback that might undo what we've just accomplished to get Lincoln reelected. Mm. Grant understood for all Sherman's talk about psychological warfare, uh, and this may be not war, but statesmanship. It's Grant who understands the real connection between war and politics uh, in a very pragmatic way. You want to win the war. You want Lincoln reelected. That's very interesting because Grant wanted nothing to do with politics and somehow he managed to keep getting drug into it uh, and eventually into the presidency. Well, Dr. Simpson, uh, is there a way that anyone listening can, if they have further questions or would like to contact you, anything you'd like to share um, in terms of information? They can contact me through email at uh, my Arizona State University address, which is Brooks, B-R-O-O-K-S dot Simpson, S-I-M-P-S-O-N at asu.edu. Great. Well, I appreciate your time. It's been an enlightening conversation. Uh, thank you for sitting down and talking about the summer of 1864 with me. 
Thank you for joining us for this discussion with Dr. Simpson on the summer of 1864. I hope you will join us next week as we sit down with Dr. Hartman of Illinois State University to talk about Karl Marx and the Civil War. Dr. Hartman is currently working on a book titled Karl Marx in America, in which he analyzes the relationship between Marx and the United States. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share with a friend, and we hope to see you next week.